If you like having Bible study in your pocket and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia. Let's get social. Connect with me at Bible Study Evangelista on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and now you can also find me on the number one Catholic app for iPhone and Android, Laudate. Let's connect. And now, let's get some Bible study in your pocket. Welcome to the Bible Study Evangelista Show, Bible Study Spinach That Tastes Like Cake. We are wrapping up our very last show on the series on the O Antiphons for Advent. And this week is actually the week in which they are chanted at Vespers after the Magnificat. And I've been posting those on social media every day so that we can kind of keep up with them. But we've covered O Wisdom, O Leader, or Lord... O Root of Jesse's Stem, O Key of David, O Radiant Dawn, O King. And today we'll look at O Emmanuel, our King and Giver of Law. Come to save us, Lord our God. Emmanuel means God with us. And it comes from the name that God revealed to Moses in the Old Testament in the Exodus or before the Exodus. He said, I am. And what he says there, he continues on sort of in an uh, elaboration and basically what he says is I am will be with his people and so it began with the revelation of his name his sacred name to Moses and he reveals through his name that he will be with his people and so the Bible is the story of God's desire to live with his people in the closest possible intimacy and so the Bible begins and it ends with the living with or the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God with men. It begins with creation and then it ends in the book of Revelation with the new creation and the new Jerusalem descending from heaven to the earth. And so the tabernacle spans salvation past, present, and future, and it gives us a unique bird's eye view of the whole Bible and the type of worship that draws us into the closest possible intimacy with God. And I've done a whole Bible study series called Fulfilled on that idea, but I didn't do with that what I'm going to do with this show. I'm going to actually begin with the with creation and go all the way through the span of the scripture to the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at how that dwelling with or God with us is a theme, one of two themes that span the entire Bible. The first one is covenants, and there were there are seven of those, and each one embraces the one that came before, and they begin with Adam and Eve, who are a marriage, and then it ends in the book of Revelation with the, the marriage of the Lamb, and in the same way, this idea of tabernacling with men does the same thing. Creation begins with that idea of tabernacling, and then in the in the new creation, we have that idea of tabernacling. And so these two are the two themes that sort of tie the entire Bible together. And so when you're trying to explain the Bible and its consistency, 
and its logic to someone who doesn't maybe believe in Christianity, although I would say an atheist, you probably need to use philosophy as the beginning place for explanation, but especially in terms of evangelism, when you're when you're evangelizing and you want to give somebody a concise view of the Bible and God's will and his heart, you want to use one of these two themes. Covenant theme is this self-donation idea. God gives himself to his people and they give themselves to him. But then this other theme, this tabernacling theme, also is a really good, concise way to share the faith because it ties not only this idea of love, but also all of Catholicism in with it because the Catholic Church, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the Catholic Church is the only church that retains all of the elements that God commanded for a complete and fully revelatory view of who he is and what he wants for us and from us. So by God's revelation and command that that Mosaic tabernacle was the prototype of all of the earthly tabernacles that would follow it. It contained specific elements that were to remain in every succeeding tabernacle because creation, the Old Testament tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem, the church as messianic temple of Ezekiel, and then also the individual soul are all types of the heavenly temple that are that is revealed in the book of Revelation. So fulfilled in Christ, the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple and all of its elements are brought forward in time just as God commanded through the Catholic Church because it is the only church on the face of the earth that retains every element he commanded for the closest possible intimacy with him. That is both um, the, in the way that he reveals himself to humanity, but also for us to be drawn into that revelation and into that intimacy that he desires. So the Catholic Church then is the fulfillment of all previous tabernacles, and it's the fullest earthly expression of the of the heavenly temple that will be God's final dwelling place with man in the new creation. So tabernacle, it means dwelling or a home for God. The tabernacle, we often think of as that golden container in the sanctuary that houses the hosts, those that have been consecrated for the Eucharist. It also, though, means house building. And so creation, the Old Testament tabernacle, the church and individual souls are all tabernacles of God. So the past, the present and the future are all tied up in this idea of tabernacle. We have the past in the Old Testament tabernacle, the present in the church, and the future in heaven that we see in the book of Revelation. So in the past, then, when we're talking about God with us or Emmanuel, we're talking about this historical Jewish association of creation and the cosmos with the Old Testament tabernacle, which later became the permanent temple. And if you notice, there's all kinds of ways in which the um, creation, sorry, is sort of uh, presented as a tabernacle and how the Jewish people understood their tabernacle and then later the temple to actually be a mini cosmos. So God created in six days and he blessed it on the seventh, the all of creation. And Solomon's temple was also consecrated for seven days, showing that Solomon understood the temple to be a type of mini creation. Eden was guarded by cherubim 
at the east, and the, the tabernacle faced east, and there were cherubim on both the veil that separated the sanctuary from the Holy of Holies, and also on the Ark of the Covenant that was inside the Holy of Holies. And of course, that Ark of the Covenant on that mercy seat is where the presence of God rested. And the people could see it. It was visible, both in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that guided them through the wilderness. We see God walking in the garden in the book of Genesis. And the language that's used to describe God moving about the tabernacle in the wilderness in Second Samuel 7 is the same language. We see the sanctuary or the Holy of Holies of creation was the Garden of Eden and its priest was Adam. The Tree of Life in the Garden of Eden was the menorah that later became part of the, I hate to use the word furniture, but the part of the furniture in that Old Testament tabernacle and then later in the uh, permanent temple, we see the spirit hovering over the chaos of primal creation. And it's the same language that is used to describe the spirit hovering over the ark in the tabernacle. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.18 that, that the law, specifically the Mosaic law, but really the whole Old Testament, cannot be abolished until heaven and earth pass away. Because the law is tied directly to the tabernacle and the temple and the rites and the ceremonies that occur there in which God is able to bring people into the closest possible intimacy with him. And so that law cannot be abolished because creation cannot be abolished until it is. And so until heaven and earth pass away, the law will stand because the law then is tied to both creation and the tabernacle and the temple. Now that Old Testament temple in Jerusalem was sacked actually twice and later in the New Testament, of course, we don't see the uh, chronicle of this in the New Testament, but we do have the history of it. And we know that that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That would have been the temple that Jesus entered into on the feast days in Jerusalem. That's the same temple that everybody used. And it's interesting. I talk about this extensively in the study fulfilled, but whereas in the Old Testament, everyone came to Jerusalem to that temple to, to worship and to offer sacrifice, now it's been flipped so that the sacrifice and the worship is everywhere, all over the world, all at one time through the Eucharist and the Mass. So there, the Masses that occur on the earth in every time zone, every hour of every day, then are that worship with the new tabernacle, meaning Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. So you can see how then the tabernacle and the temple are all tied into this, um, this idea of God with us, how he wants to live with us and be among us so that we can be close to him and he can be close to us. Now, of course, those are anthropomorphic terms, which just means giving God human characteristics. But you get the idea. More when we get back. I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible study evangelista on God with us, Emmanuel. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. 
Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. Looking at the last O Antiphon, O Emmanuel, it's probably the most famous and the most beautiful. Uh, It means God with us, and we've already looked at how God is with us through creation and how creation was meant to be a sort of uh, temple, a micro temple for God himself. Of course, God doesn't live in temples made with hands, but I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Before I launch in, I want to uh, thank my friends of the show, I'm going to actually go back a couple weeks because I haven't shouted them out on the show, even though I've listed them on the weekly email. So Cindy K, Regina L, Joe K, Maribel M, Mary R, Julie F, Ed P, Holly R, Nicole B, Elaine L, Charlotte M, Michelle VW, Teresa VP, Ellie T, Julie N, and Robert J. Thank you for being friends of the show especially now with all of this stuff I'm doing with online conferences and things with you guys, which I absolutely love. I'm, I'm thankful to be able to do that since we can't meet as much uh, now with COVID. So the name Emmanuel, as I mentioned, means God with us, and it's taken from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So Emmanuel is unique in that it's prophetic of the name of Christ. In the book, Fire of Mercy, Heart of the Word, it speaks about this radical significance behind Matthew's translation in chapter 1, verse 24, of Emmanuel from the Hebrew, which was the language that the Jews considered sacred, to Greek, the language of the Gentiles and the whole world. So the author of that book sees in that translation between the Old Testament and New Testament a parallel and how God is viewed under each of those covenants or testaments. He says, on the subject of Jesus as the translator of God... Uh, Father Louis de de Leon, the Spanish Dominican, who was also a great writer, has left us an unforgettable formulation in his treatise on the names of Christ. He says that the sacred name of God in the Old Testament, the unpronounceable Tetragrammaton, is found again in the Hebrew name of Jesus, Emmanuel, with the addition of the radicals from the verb to save and the vowels necessary to pronounce the divine name. So this name for Jesus combines the holy sacred name from the Old Testament that I mentioned in the first segment with the consonants needed to say Emmanuel or to spell it. And so he continues on. He says, in this way, while the name of God is so holy, mysterious and pure that it cannot be pronounced by a human mouth, the addition of Christ's divine name or divine will to save mankind translates or transfers the sanctity of God to our level as creatures and at last makes it possible for us too to pronounce God's true name, which cannot be any other than Jesus, and thus be saved. 
All else that we subsequently come to know about God rests on this primary revelation. He is the one who saves us in Jesus. I think that's a great, really fascinating um, thing to point out that Jesus's name, Emmanuel, God with us, contains in it through the vowel sounds, the breath sounds, which I've talked about before, of God's unpronounceable sacred name, which is only was only ever spoken in the tabernacle, which will tie to uh, the remaining tabernacles in our discussion in a minute. It's tied to speaking the sacred name in the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was when the great sacrifice, it was the great holy day, which the blood of the sacrifice was taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that mercy seat, as I mentioned, was the place where God's presence rested. And so Jesus is the tabernacle of God with men who saves us. Isn't that cool? So if we go back to the prophecy in Isaiah seven fourteen, the name Emmanuel means God with us and the name Jesus explains how and why God is with us. That is, he's with us in the person of Christ and he's with us to save. Emmanuel is a Hebrew name that first appeared in that book of Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so it's a masculine personal name in the Hebrew, meaning God with us or God is with us, which goes back to the name that God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. The word Emmanuel, it only appears three times in the whole Bible. Besides the reference in Isaiah, it's found in 8.8 and also cited in Matthew 1.23. It's alluded to in Isaiah 8.10. But the promise of Emmanuel comes to us when Mary and Joseph were betrothed and Mary was found pregnant, but Joseph knew that the child wasn't his because he had not had relations with her. So to explain what happened, an angel appeared in a dream and told him not to be afraid to take her home as as his wife and she would give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus, the angel said, because he will save the people from their sins. So you can see how all this is tied together with his name. The gospel writer, Matthew, who was addressing a specifically Jewish audience, then refers to the prophecy in Isaiah, written more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in that fullness of time, God sent his son. And when Jesus was born, all doubt about Isaiah's prophecy faded because Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the prophet's words. He was fully man and yet still fully God. He came to live in Israel with his people as Isaiah foretold. And of course, the name Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew means the Lord is salvation. So originally that name was given to an actual child born in the time of King Ahaz. Remember that the prophecies, that all prophecy has a, a contextual application for the people who lived at that time and to whom the writing was written. And then it has a messianic application in Christ. And then it has a second messianic application, usually in the end times, which is where we see it come up again in the book of Revelation, which we'll get to in a moment. 
But it was meant as a sign to the king that Judah would be given a reprieve from attacks by Israel and Syria. And so the name was symbolic of the fact that God was going to show his presence through the deliverance of his people, just like he said in the burning bush with Moses with his name. So obviously there is that messianic application that was the prophecy of the birth of the incarnate God, Jesus, the Messiah, which I don't think they understood then that it was going to be an incarnation of God himself. Um, But it's interesting. I read in one of the meditations during this week in the Magnificat, somebody asked me about the song, Mary, did you know, as I mentioned last in last week's show. And he says specifically that, yes, Mary did know. And I thought that was interesting because it was something that came up in, in the readings, in the meditation with the readings for this week in an answer to that person's um question so I thought that was neat that always happens y'all if you have a question if you'll just ask the Lord and wait he'll he'll answer you through the scriptures so as I started with the the first part of the show that concept of Emmanuel or God with us begins with creation it continues through the Old Testament tabernacle then later the permanent temple then we have the prophecies of the messianic temple which is the church um, which I kind of want to get into now so in Ezekiel chapter 44 the, the writer of the book of Ezekiel used the kingdom split and that religious split to prophesy two priesthoods in the Messianic temple, which everyone in Christendom understands to be the church. And at that time, that would have been the future church. For us, it's the present church. We are the Messianic temple. And so it says there that there is one priesthood whose priests serve at the table keeping the charge. And then there's another one that does not. And I find that absolutely fascinating. I I hesitate sometimes to even bring this up, although I included it in my book Fulfilled, because I've never heard anybody else talk about this. But it's so important when we talk about the split between Catholicism and Protestantism, because here, right here in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 44, he prophesies this very split. There will be two types of priesthood, one that has the rights. When it says keep the charge, it means the rights and the ceremonies regarding the table, right? And the Catholic Church is the only church that has the table that is also an altar and the liturgy and the ceremonies and the rites associated with it. But there are non-Catholic Christians who have pastors as well but they just don't serve at the table. They don't serve at the table because they don't believe in the table. They don't believe in the Eucharist. And so they they don't serve at the table, but they are included in the Messianic temple or the church. They're included because of their faith in Christ, but they serve outside that area in this Messianic temple. The writer in Ezekiel is using the kingdom split in which Jeroboam took 10 tribes and went north and made up this new religion with new holy sites because he did not want the people traveling south to Jerusalem where the beautiful, glorious, permanent temple was located. He didn't want them going down there. So he set up these other holy sites, which that whole thing later became Samaritanism. And it was a watered-down even idolatrous structure of worship, which even Jesus condemned with the Samaritan woman at the well in uh, John chapter four. We'll unpack that a little more when we get back.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. Ezekiel 44.10 says, And the Levites, or the priests, who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. And so he allows them to serve at in the Messianic temple, which to him is in the future. He allows them to serve uh, because they remain a sort of priesthood, but he does not allow them at the table. And he does it because of their rebellion and their idolatry against Judah, which was the um, orthodox Judaism from which the Pharisees came. Okay. And so he talks about their rebellion and their idolatry and all. And then he says in verse 15, but the priests, the Levites, the son of Zadok, sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me and they shall stand before me to offer to me the sacrifices, said the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near my table to minister to me and they will keep my charge, which means the ceremonies and rites regarding that table. And so for us, then the table is the altar of sacrifice of the Eucharist, which is Christ himself, the only worthy, righteous sacrifice that has ever and will ever be made. And so you can see that Ezekiel is prophesying these two types of priesthood. One is legitimate and the other is somewhat illegitimate, but they both serve in the Messianic temple, one at the table and one not at the table. And if that is not a perfect parallel between Catholicism and Protestantism, I don't know what is in the Old Testament. I, it's so clear because what happened in Protestantism is almost exactly what happened in the kingdom split, where Protestantism took some of the Catholicism and did away with other parts. And after Luther, they took some of the scriptures and they discarded other parts. Now, that's a historic fact. That's not something that I'm making up. Martin Luther took books out of the Bible, which is why Protestant Bibles have fewer books than Catholic Bibles. He removed them altogether, partly because they spoke of the priesthood and partly because they spoke of things like praying to the dead in in the book of Maccabees and things like that, or praying for the dead not to the dead, sorry. But because of that, he removed them entirely. And he particularly disliked other books of the New Testament that end up ended up at the end in what he put as like an appendix. That would have been uh, Hebrews, James, Peter, John, some of those. He, he particularly did not like the book of James because the book of James is clear that works are part of salvation. He says, without works, you can't be saved. He says it plainly. And because of that, particularly, he wanted it removed from the Bible. So after Protestantism, after the split of Protestantism, they did away with the priesthood and the sacrifice, because you have to have a priest for a sacrifice. And so they don't have any of that anymore. And so this 
prophecy in Ezekiel shows clearly what the Messianic temple is going to look like. And we can see in the church this very thing. And it happened almost almost exactly parallel to what happened in the Old Testament as well. Because what happens after the Protestant split is this watering down of authority and teaching and and of course, somebody actually mentioned on the discussion page on Facebook, they were asking about these modern day prophets in Protestantism. And part of that comes from a, a desire to be relevant. They don't have the magisterium. They don't have the sacraments. They don't have all of that stuff. This ancient history of the church to anchor them. They don't have the the historical teaching of the church, a lot of it. Some of it, of course, they retain because they are obviously Christians. They have faith in our Savior, Emmanuel. They have that faith, so they are Christian, but they're, they've done away and watered down with so much of what it means to be the church, which we will see in the in I got to get moving on this in, in this segment and also in the next They've taken away so much of what it means to draw into full intimacy, especially when it regards the charge or the ceremonies and the rites of worship. They've done away with so much of that. And most of that comes all comes back to the authority of the church, which is a whole nother issue. And I don't want to get into that. But my point here is that the Messianic temple prophesied in the Old Testament then shows us that the church, what the church should look like. And it is a temple and it has all of the elements that were included in the Old Testament tabernacle. So the tabernacle and the Messianic church or the Messianic temple that is prophesied in the prophets of the Old Testament, they both or all, we should say, are prototypes of Jesus as the tabernacle every soul as a tabernacle after him, and all of those souls that are tabernacles actually make up a living tabernacle in which God dwells. He dwells in it now, but later when all things are are finalized and all things are complete, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is made up of living stones, Paul says, will descend from heaven and make its dwelling place on the earth in the new creation. And so this is why it's so important to understand this tabernacle as a theme that ties the whole Bible together, because all of these tabernacles should be similar. And in the Catholic Church, they are. The old, the creation, the Old Testament tabernacle, the Messianic temple, the church, each individual soul, all of that should reflect almost identically, except for the spiritual components, the New Testament, or not New Testament, I'm sorry, the heavenly temple that we see in the book of Revelation. And I am kind of getting ahead of myself because right now what I really want to do is talk about the particular elements in that Old Testament tabernacle that we're supposed to all have. They include an altar, which for us is the cross, a laver, which was a a water or a a cleansing basin, which for us is symbolic or a prototype of baptism. There was a menorah, which is symbolic and a prototype of our Catholic magisterium because the menorah was the only light. And the Bible talks about the light of the world being Christ, the lampstand, but the lampstand's or the lampstand in the Old Testament included 
this idea of almond decoration, which was specific to the institutional priesthood of the Old Testament. So the magisterium then is reflected in that menorah. So the present spread was the next thing, which we, of course, have the Eucharist. Incense, which is a prototype of Catholic prayer or Christian prayer. The veil in the tabernacle, which is um, a, a picture or a symbol or a prototype of human flesh. And the Ark of the Covenant, which is a prototype of Mary herself. So the Old Testament tabernacle had an altar, a laver, a menorah, present spread, incense, a veil, and an ark. The Catholic Church also has an altar, a laver, menorah, present spread, incense, veil, and ark in the cross, baptism, the magisterium, the Eucharist, prayer, the flesh, and Mary. Now, our non-Catholic brothers and sisters have some of these. They have the, the cross as their altar. They have baptism as their laver. But they do not have a magisterium or a priesthood as their menorah, although they do have the Bible, the word of God, which is included in that magisterium. The deposit of faith of the church is both written and oral through that magisterium. They don't have a presence bread because they don't have a Eucharist with a real presence in it. (laughs) They do have prayer as incense, though. They do have flesh as a veil, but they don't have Mary as their ark. And church history tells us, and we talked about this last week in the last show, that Mary is the new ark of the new covenant. The Bible itself displays that in the book of Revelation chapter uh, 12. So the Catholic Church then is the only church on the face of the earth, even the Orthodox, that maintains all of these elements that God commanded in the Old Testament. And not only did he command that they build them as a prototype of the temple in the heavenly, in the heavens, the heavenly temple, but he also commanded that they must remain perpetual. They must remain forever. And the Catholic Church has carried them forward through Christ who is the fulfillment of each of these things in him, his person. He is He is our altar. He is our baptism. He is our magisterium. He is our Eucharist. He is our prayer. He is our flesh. He is the ark, right? He fulfills all of these in his person, but he brings them forward in his body, in his person, the body of Christ, the church. And the Catholic church is the only one that maintains every single one of these elements, The one that no one else shares is the magisterium. Our non-Catholic brothers and sisters have a priesthood, right? And and some of them actually do have an institutional priesthood, the the Anglicans, for instance. And so do the Orthodox. Our Orthodox, like Russian Orthodox, they're not actually Catholic, but they do retain the Eucharist because of their priesthood. But they are not in union with our Pope. And so it's not exactly the same. It's not the the full menorah, right? And so even they are missing part of this one part, but it's one part, right? It's the Catholic Church that maintains all of these elements. And the elements are also meant to be reflected in each individual soul. That means that each of us should be worshiping with all of these elements. And when we do, we have access to the closest possible intimacy with God on earth, Emmanuel.
You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonia. When I talk about the Old Testament tabernacle with non-Catholics, they often, and I had this argument as well as I was researching Catholicism, they often ask me about that verse in the book of Hebrews where it says the Old Testament and its tabernacle are obsolete. And to us, that word obsolete means that it's just been tossed out, that there's something wrong with it and it's been, it's been completely negated, right? But that's not what... Jesus means by that term. And I know because I asked him myself, I asked him, what does that actually mean? And he, this is what he said to me, not like in words, but you know what I mean? An impression. And as I was, I was, as I was praying and I'm thinking, this is what he said to me. Think about my actual literal body, the body that I, that he has now, but that he came to earth with in the incarnation, right? So that body, there was nothing wrong with that body, Even though it died, there was nothing wrong with it. It came to earth to do a particular thing, to reveal God to us, to die for us on the cross, and then to ascend back into heaven to God as a sacrifice for us. That body is obsolete now because he has been resurrected and it is now a new, transformed, resurrected body. The old body was obsolete, but there was nothing wrong with the old body. And number two, that old body has been transformed and brought forward into something resurrected. (laughs) It was so resurrected and so different from the original body that at the resurrection morning, it was unrecognizable. Mary Magdalene was at the tomb and Jesus said her name. And until he did, she did not recognize him. She thought he was the gardener. When he appeared to those disciples up in the upper room, they too were in shock. And people think that it's all all because he was resurrected. And of course, that's true. But his body was different. And he had to show the scars. And so you can see then that the new resurrected body was the old body but transformed and changed into something supernatural. That's exactly what the Old Testament was. It was an old thing that served its purpose perfectly. It did exactly what God gave it to them, the Jews, to do, which was to reveal God to people and to draw them into intimacy with him and to foreshadow Christ who would come and fulfill all of those things. But it was the prototype, or I like to say the skeleton of what would come. The worship of the Old Testament, we're not Jewish now, right? So we don't haul a heifer up on the altar and slit its throat and throw the blood all over the church. We're not Jewish, so we don't do that. But we do have an actual, real sacrifice that atones for sin. And we 
we participate in it or re-participate in it as a memorial, which means we bring it forward into time, the past, we bring the past forward into time, which is also the future because Jesus is, he lives in heaven with God in his actual physical resurrected body right now. And we are living as part of that body. Paul talks about Every Christian being a living stone that makes up a living tabernacle for God to live in. And each soul then should have each of those elements that were prescribed in the Old Testament by God himself in his own soul and in his own worship. We should have an altar. We should have a a laver or a baptism. We should have a magisterium or a menorah. We should have a Eucharist or a present spread. We should have prayer or incense. We should have a veil, and we all do. Everybody has a body, and we should have Mary as our Ark of the New Covenant. When we are... When I hate to use the word use, but when we're availing ourselves of each of those elements, we are assured of being brought into the closest possible intimacy with God as long as our disposition is according to that purpose. And so the Old Testament then is obsolete in the same way that Jesus's earthly body is obsolete. It died. The Old Testament tabernacle is dead. It was destroyed in 70 AD, probably likely to never be built again. It's, it's gone. But it remains in Christ's transformed, resurrected body. And in his body, we are the body of Christ. He is our head and we are the living stones. And so the church then makes up that living tabernacle. The church should also have each of those Old Testament tabernacle elements, and it does in the Catholic church. And so because of that, God can be with us in Christ and in the church in the closest possible relationship, which was his plan all along. So when the book of Hebrews says that the Old Testament covenant or the old covenant is obsolete, it doesn't mean there was something wrong with it because there was nothing wrong with Jesus's body either. Both of them did exactly what they were made to do. They were made to reveal God, but Jesus died and his body is different and the tabernacle is gone, but it's still here, different and fulfilled and transformed by grace through the resurrection of Christ. And so now it comes forward with what the Old Testament did not have. The Old Testament tabernacles did not have saving grace. And that's what that was the one thing they were missing. They couldn't save people. That altar and the laver and the menorah and the present spread and the incense and the veil and the the original ark, none of those original elements could save anyone, not permanently. They were temporary cleansing for the people And in fact, it only lasted one year. The Day of Atonement had to be repeated every single year, which is what the book of Hebrews tells us if you read through it. And so my point there is then that the Old Testament tabernacle was was um, a microcosm or a small creation. (laughs) And that's how the Jews saw it. So creation is a home for God. The Old Testament tabernacle was a home for God. The church is a home for God. Your soul is a home for God. And the the, um, New Jerusalem, which will descend from heaven and which we see in 
the book of Revelation, when the heavens are opened and St. John sees what's happening in heaven, he sees this heavenly temple. And in that heavenly temple is every one of these liturgical elements that were present in the Old Testament tabernacle. And so this is why this is a beautiful and, and concise evangelization tool, this tabernacle idea, because they should all be consistently similar. And it's only in the Catholic Church that they are. The Catholic Church is the tabernacle of God. And I'm not saying that non-Catholics are not Christians and that they're not going to be saved or that they're, they're not, you know, part of us. They are. They're just separated. And that's exactly what the book of Ezekiel shows us would happen to them. It was the, the future. But for us, we can look back on that and see that it was a prophecy of what the New Testament church should look like. And it is. It looks just like that. There is a split. There is a priesthood, an institutional priesthood of the line of Zadok, which means legitimate. The legitimate priesthood keeps the charge at the table. And then there is another type of priesthood that doesn't keep the charge at the table. They operate outside of that area. And so they're not able to draw as close to God as they could because they don't have the table. (laughs) And it's the table that draws them into the sanctuary. It's interesting this year. I mean, not this year, but this week for RCIA, we did a church tour. We do this every year. I always do this for um, the people in my RCIA classes. I have our priest, whoever the priest is for that year, I have, I ask him to do a church tour. And one of the things that he brought up, I love this because I always learn something. Every single year I learn something when I'm teaching RCIA all over again. It's so cool. But he mentioned that the part of the church that we would say was a stage, right? It's elevated. The reason it's elevated is because it's the inner sanctuary of the church. It's where the action occurs. It's where the Holy of Holies is. It's where the firefall occurs. It's where the presence of God falls on the altar, on the sacrifice. It's the altar, the Catholic altar, where the Eucharist is consecrated. And so it's raised to to show and to separate it from the rest of the church, to show that, that there's something particular and something special occurring there. And that's why we're, we're not really supposed to go up there. You're not supposed to be in that area at all, unless you're a sacristan or a priest or serving at the altar as an altar boy or a deacon or whatever. That area is, it is consecrated. And so you're not supposed to be in that area because it is the Holy of Holies of the Catholic Church. It's where the sacrifice occurs. But your soul also is the Holy of Holies. It's meant to be a throne for God, a throne where God can be present in you, with you forever. The book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, which was the ark, saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so we can see then that all of these tabernacles are meant to show this final dwelling place with God among his people. And it all goes back to the name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush, I am that unspeakable name, which is contained in the name Emmanuel, God with us. Merry Christmas, folks. I'll see you after the first of the year in which we will continue with a series on the end times.
Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Evangelista show. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com.